Hey, welcome. It's Sunday's reading. Sunday, Sunday's reading. I got my new Surf and Santa shirt on to get from my sister. I have two other two other Hawaiian shirts like this, but this one's from this is the newest one for my sister. I want to welcome everybody. Um, it's Sunday night. And we're going to be reading Mrs. Miracle here. We'll give everybody a few minutes to get in. Let me just tighten this up a little bit here. Most people take their clothes off on camera. I put my clothes on. See? You do this right here, and we're good. Okay, so I want to welcome everybody. Sunday night, horrible, horrible storms all over, all over the U.S. Now California is getting hit. Gonna have high, supposed to have high winds tomorrow and stuff. So, um, yeah, gotta watch that. Gotta watch all that. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. To get hit really hard. Um, I want to thank thank you all for coming. Yeah, oh, we got somebody in the chat room. Thank you guys all for coming, and uh, I'm excited to be reading this. And I have announcements to make after I do this tonight. Some kind of cool announcements. I'm going to go ahead and run this banner. I usually don't, but I'm going to do that. And uh, okay, so I got some announcements to make tonight too. My name is Charlotte. I am uh, the owner. The California Haas Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento. We're 35 strong up and down the state of California. And we also have people in Oregon, Washington, and Utah. Uh, so this is California, normally California Haunts Radio. But every Sunday I've been reading a holiday book for people. And we're going to do it leading up to Christmas. And we may do it after Christmas as well. Because I, I think everybody is enjoying these stories. Again, I've got my Aloha Santa going on here. You know, Ch Chaka Santa. And uh, give a couple more minutes, and then we're going to start. Read for an hour from Mrs. Miracle. Last week, we got through five chapters of Mrs. Miracle. And it's a fairly good book. You can hear I got my fireplace going on behind me. See, you see my fireplace kind of back there. You can hear my fireplace. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll be reading from that. And if you guys are interested, uh, next Sunday night, we're going to be doing this at 5 p.m. Pacific instead of 6.30. Because um, there's an event scheduled that... that California Haunts Radio and California Haunts and Stephanie and our, our mediums that Stephanie is putting on Sunday night and it's a reading for a psychic readings for Solstice and that's going to be Sunday at 7 p.m. Pacific time and if you're interested visit www.californiahauntsradio.com and go over to the top where it says go, go all the way over to the top thing on the menu click and it'll take you into events uh, you get three three you can ask Stephanie three questions which she'll answer for you individually. So she'll go around, you know, it's all, it's all on Zoom. So she'll go around from person to person and answer the questions for you. So you get three, you get three questions, and then she 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 does her readings via runes, tarot cards, and other stuff. So if you're interested in getting a reading next weekend, visit www.californiahauntsradio.com. And uh, like I said, go all the way across the top menu, click on that. And then it'll pop down to say events, and then go on, go to the event page, and you'll find everything there to sign up. Okay, well, we'll go two more minutes, give people time to get in the chat room, and away we go. But uh, that's one of the announcements I had. The other announcement I had is I will be reading on Christmas Eve uh, from, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. I guess it's called a Virginia letter. I've got a nice uh, poem about a Christmas cat, and it's not the poem that you're used to hearing. It's a different type of poem. Um, and also, I want to read the night before Christmas, and maybe the Polar Express that night, so we'll see how that goes. But there will be a reading Christmas Eve, and I know you guys are busy, so you can always come back and see it. Anyway, welcome, and uh, 
again, if you're interested in having a read, you know, get, getting a nice get three questions done on uh, uh, psychic reading, feel free to go to www.californiahauntsradio.com and check us out and, and check it out there. Like I said, all the way over the top menu, and boom, it'll drop down as an event, and then you can get in there. Anyway, welcome, and uh, without further ado, we're in chapter. We just start chapter six of Mrs. Miracle. get my grip on here. Sharon Palmer's marriage was dying. A long, okay, let me try this again. Sharon Palmer's marriage was dying, a long, slow, painful death. She sat on the edge of her mattress and brushed her, her fingers through the thick tangles in her dark, rich hair. She slept far later than normal, but she didn't feel rested. As part of her long, a part of her long to crawl back into bed, bury her head under a pillow, and weep. She wasn't sure why she would feel this way. Then again, she did know Jerry. Her gaze drifted to the rumpled half of the other side of the bed. She'd slept next to the same man for nearly 40 years. That should account for something. It was a sad commentary that she could have lived with Jerry all this time and come and, and then come to the sad, some realization that she no longer loved him. No, that was too harsh. Of course she loved Jerry. She loved him from the moment she'd first seen him as a college freshman. So brash and handsome. Her heart had pounded like a ramrod against her useful her useful breast at the mere sight of him. In the last three decades together, they'd born, raised, and educated three children, and buried one. When did this unhappiness, this content start, she wondered. Sharon tried to trace the path of her dissatisfaction, but no clear answer came to her. After Pamela's death, she guessed, Sharon's entire world had been tossed upside down with the loss of their only daughter. Then the twins had come to live, live with her and Jerry. Having the babies with them had helped ease the shock and pain. With two toddlers underfoot, Sheridan hadn't had time to grieve or dwell on her loss. Her day had been absorbed with the care and feeding of her grandchildren. The twins had helped Jerry deal with Pamela's death as well. When they first heard the horrible news, they, they wept in each other's arms, clinging to, clinging to one another had helped them through the terrible dark weeks that followed. Soon afterward, however, Jerry had grown introspective and sudden and sullen. But then the children had come to live with them. But then the children had come to live with them, and that had all changed. With Judd and Jason around, he was soon his old self again. Both patient and indulgent with the kids, Jerry had been wonderful. And not only with the twins, but with her as well. Then, as time progressed, all that had slowly changed. Just recently, her husband had retired. They talked about traveling, playing golf, developing other interests. And it all sounded so good, sleeping in every morning, staying up late, chasing each other around the house like newlyweds. Only none of these things had come to pass. Jerry had retired, and once again, their well-organized life had taken a sharp turn for the unexpected. Sherry had believed that once the twins returned to their father, everything would right itself again. But that hadn't been the case. Whatever was wrong between her and her husband had intensified in the months since Judd and Jason had gone back to live with Seth. It's about time you were awake, her husband paused in the doorway leading to their bedroom. Looking at him, Sharon reflected that even now, in his early 60s, Jerry was a fine figure of a man. Although his hair had receded from his forehead, it was thick. It was a thick mixture of white and gray. He remained fit and routinely played 18 holes of golf with his friends. Several of Sharon's friends envied her outright and told her she was 
fortunate to have another to have it to have an attractive acupuncture. I thought you might be tempted to stay in bed all morning. He didn't. He didn't need to tell her. He just approved of her sleeping in. The message came across loud and clear. His gaze rested briefly on the clock next to the bed. It's eight thirty already. I made my own breakfast. This too was not. This too was a not so subtle accusation. For more years than she wanted to count, she cooked Jerry's breakfast. Even when she held down a forty-hour-a-week job abroad. She'd taken the time to see that he left the house with a warm meal in his stomach. You sick or something, he pressed? No. How late did you stay up anyway? Around 11 or so, not late. They rarely went to bed at the same time these days. She couldn't remember the last time they'd made love. Months ago, she realized sadly. But then they were both over 60, and a decrease in sexual activity was to be expected. At least that was what she told herself. Did you look over those travel brochures? Yes. She stood and walked toward her closet. Jerry had suggested a cruise sometime after the first of the year. It sounded good in theory. She envisioned visiting exotic locations, shopping in the Far East. The Orient had always intrigued her. But Jerry wanted none of that. He decided early on that if they were going to go on a cruise, it would be to the Panama Canal. Well, he said with a bite of impatience, which cruise line did you decide on? She turned around and glared at her husband. This was the big compromise. He decided where they he decided where they would tour, and she was given the opportunity to choose which cruise line. I don't care, they all look the same to me. You decide. Jerry scowled at her. Sharon could see that her answer didn't please him, but that didn't concern her either. It didn't matter to her which cruise ship they booked, not when she had no desire to spend thousands of dollars to visit a destination that never been, that never appealed to her. You want me to decide? Feel free. He did everything else. Why not? I'd appreciate it if you showed a little more enthusiasm. We've been planning this trip for years. We? That was almost enough to make her laugh. You were the one who wanted to see the Panama Canal, not me. It was as though he hadn't heard her. Why do you always leave everything to me? It's a, it amazed her that he didn't know. She wondered if her husband had always been obtuse. I'm trying to arrange the vacation of our lives, he muttered impatiently, and you're fighting me every step of the way. I'm not fighting you. Then the least you can do is show a little enthusiasm, he snapped. She pinched her lips together to keep from arguing. Jerry was right. This cruise meant a great deal to him. He talked a little else for weeks. No, months. Ever since it was decided, the twins would move back to their father. I'd like to spend Christmas with Seth and the children. The best way to handle discord Sharon had learned early on in the relationship was to change the subject. And of late, it was the only way they could remain civil with each other, bouncing like ping pong ball from one subject to the next. I don't think that's a good idea. Why not? She demanded. He had selfishly insisted on the cruise he wanted. All she cared about was sharing the holidays with her two precious grandchildren. Clay and Neil won't be home, and the twins are only now adjusting to their life with Seth. I don't think it would be a good idea for us to interfere. I'm not going to interfere. She reached for the brush and, and jerked it through the long, thick tresses, tugging at the tangles, brought unexpected tears to her eyes. She'd been married to Jerry all these years, had loved him, borne his children, kept his home, yet the man she'd married, the man she'd spent the last 40 years of her life with, didn't know her. Not really. I hadn't, it hadn't been easy for her to hand her grandchildren back to their father. Jerry didn't seem to realize or appreciate what it had cost her to send the twins home with Seth. The emptiness in her life had never been more pronounced. I just don't think it's a good idea, Jerry insisted. The hot surge of anger that assaulted 
her, came as a surprise. She fought down the urge to fill the brush and shout, and shout. Her fingers tightened around the handle until her hand ate. Sherry wasn't sure what would have happened. The phone hadn't run at precisely that moment. I'll get it. Grateful for the intrusion, she walked over to the bedstand. Hello, she greeted as if her world were in perfect order, when it felt as if the edges had crumbled beyond repair. Grandma, it's Jason. Jason, Sharon's heart gladdened instantly. She routinely talked to the twins once a week. She worried about them, worried that they missed her and, and would have a difficult time adjusting to their new lives in Seattle. How are, how are you, sweetheart? I miss you. She bit down on her lower lip at the swell of tenderness she experienced for her grandson. I miss you too. How's everything? Okay, you know, Mrs. Hampson quit. Mrs. Hampson quit, don't you? Jason asked this with Lee as if he were reporting a good grade on, on a school project. Sharon had heard that a bit, that bit of, of unfortunate news a couple weeks earlier. She realized the kids weren't thrilled with Mrs. Hampstead. 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 Got it together. But Seth was fortunate to have found someone dependable, especially in light of what had happened with the other housekeepers. Jenny and I didn't like her. How's your, has your father hired a replacement? Sharon could hear background noise and suspected Judd was demanding, was demanding the phone. It was his turn to talk. The sounds of a scuffle ensued. Jason, Judd, it did her little good to shout into the mouthpiece. A couple of minutes passed before Seth came on the line. Sharon, are you still there? What's going on? He apparently thought she was asking about the twins. Sorry, the kids were squabbling. I mean with the housekeeper. Not to worry, I've got someone new. Sharon was relieved. That's good. No need to concern yourself. Everything's coming along nicely. No more mishaps. Just this one fits right in. I'm glad to hear it. But do you need... She stopped herself in time from asking if he needed her. She had decided that when the couldn't be back to Seattle, she wouldn't rush over to rescue the minute something went wrong. Everything's fine. You don't need to worry. Mrs. Miracle stepped in as if she'd been with me from the beginning. Mrs. Miracle? Her name's actually Merkel, but the kids call her Mrs. Miracle. Does she know about Jason's? Again, she stopped herself from speaking. She wasn't the she wasn't the one responsible for the twins any longer. Matters were well in hand with Seth, and he'd, he'd see to it that the children's needs were met. Then she cast a glance towards Jerry and sat up a bit straighter. It irritated her that he would tell her she couldn't see the children over Christmas. Have you made any plans for the holiday, Seth? Not yet. If you're thinking of paying a visit, the kids and I would love it. You, you're sure? She asked. She noticed Jerry, glancing, glancing her way, but she ignored him. Positive. Judd and Jason would be thrilled. They're involved in the church Christmas pageant and would love it if you and Jerry could, you know, could be there to see them. I won't, I won't say anything to the kids. Of course not until your plans are definite. But we'd love to have you. Even from where she was standing, Sharon could see her husband's shoulders tense. Hearing Seth's enthusiasm, Sharon felt the faint stirring of her own. It wouldn't be Christmas without Judd and Jason. Despite Jerry's protest, she fully intended to spend the holidays with her grandchildren. Their sons, Clay, their sons Clay and Neil, had both made up their plans and wouldn't be home. Sharon could see no reason to spend the day alone. Christmas was an empty holiday without children. She and Jerry hadn't celebrated the season alone in years. Only when the boys and the grandchildren were with them had they bought each other presents or done much of anything. The thought of remaining in California where she could be with her precious grandchildren was intolerable. I'll make the arrangements then as soon as I can, she said to the phone. Wonderful. They must have talked ten minutes more before she replaced the telephone receiver. 
She released a soft sigh of satisfaction, but not because she decided to ignore her husband's wishes. Okay? If the truth be known, she'd rather not defy Jerry. But it would take a lot more than her husband to stand between her and her grandchildren, no matter how many years they've been married. I wish you hadn't said anything about Christmas, Jerry said, his words stiff and tight with anger. Why? It's time to make the flight arrangements. Past time, really. I told you that I didn't think it was a good idea to visit the kids, and I disagree. I miss them. They're as much a part of me as my own children. She stopped short of reminding him that Jen and Jason felt as much like her own children as the ones she'd born herself. Surely he could understand that. I want you to call Seth back and tell him, I most certainly will not, Sharon cried, too outraged even to let him finish. With her housecoat flowing behind her like a train on a wedding dress, she swept out of the bedroom. She stood in the kitchen and looked around her, eyes narrowing at the sight. Jerry had cooked his own breakfast all right, and he used every frying pan in the house to do it. Her spotlessly clean kitchen resembled a construction site. The travel brochures for the Panama Cruise littered the round oak table. Jerry followed her, his face red and his eyes hot. She rarely went against her husband, but she was standing her ground now. He walked toward the phone. Who are you phoning? Seth, he lifted the receiver from the hook. If you call Seth, I'll refuse to take that ridiculous cruise with you. Jerry's eyes widened with shock. Ridiculous cruise? It was never my idea to sail through the Panama. It was never my idea to sail through the Panama Canal. I wanted to go to Hong Kong, remember? He cringed as though the very idea were repugnant to him. They glared at each other, each waiting for the other to capitulate. Slowly, Jerry hung up the phone. Maybe I should take that cruise by myself, then, he wondered. Maybe you should, she said. His gaze narrowed as he filled his coffee cup and stalked out of the kitchen. At first, Sharon was tempted to call after him, explain how much it meant for her to visit the grandchildren, but she said nothing. Jerry didn't want to, Jerry didn't want to hear it, didn't understand, or care to. She sang out in the kitchen, under a kitchen chair. It was difficult to know when their relationship had gone wrong. She loved her husband, but she couldn't imagine spending the rest of her life with him, not with things the way they currently were. She couldn't believe this was happening. It would, it would take a miracle to heal her marriage. Chapter 7 Seth's hand lingered on the telephone. Something was wrong with Sharon. He knew his mother-in-law could sense her uneasiness her unhappiness. He heard it in the telltale inflection in her voice, the hesitation, the weariness. He wished he knew what he could do to help, or if that were even possible. He felt close to his in-laws, close and grateful as well as he should. During his most recent visit to California, when he'd driven down to move the twins back with him, he noticed something. Then, Sharon had laughed a little too loudly, sounded a shade too enthusiastic. Not about the twins leaving. That had been difficult on everyone, but about life in general, it wasn't like her. His father-in-law, however, had grown quiet and introspective, non-communicative. He seemed prone to hide his face in a book. There had been some talk about the Palmers taking a cruise, but since then he hadn't heard anything more about this long-awaited vacation. Seth had attributed his odd behavior to the stress of him taking the children. But whatever the reason, it didn't seem to have gone away. The tension was as thick as tar. Not until he was puttering around the house inside the garage while the twins helped Mrs. Merkel with dinner that he realized that he hadn't spoken to Jerry and neither had the twins. His father-in-law generally made a practice of speaking briefly with the twins each week. Seth understood that the kid's grandfather didn't like talking on the phone, but he got a kick out of chatting with his two grandchildren. Not so on this Sunday. 
Seth reached for the toaster, and it stopped working a month or so earlier, when Mrs. Hamilton had ruled the roost. He promised to take a look at it, but this was the first chance he had. Not that he had, not that he held out much hope of repairing it. It would probably save a lot of time and effort if he would have popped into the car and buy a new one. And he might have, if fixing it hadn't afforded him the opportunity to fiddle around the garage and enjoy the solitude. In another hour, the Seahawk football game would be televised, and the kids would be crawling all over him. The toaster offered him the perfect excuse to spend a few peaceful moments alone. For a long time, Smith had avoided opportunities to think. Then, just when he felt it was no longer necessary to restrain his thoughts from dwelling on his dead wife, the children had returned. Every now and again, one of the twins would glance up at him, and it was like looking into Pamela's eyes, seeing his wife smile again. He might as well have been hit from behind. The pain was back, ever present, ever reminding him of all that he'd lost. He sought his own company this afternoon for another reason, however. He'd seen her in church that morning. Her. He didn't know her name, a face, a friendly, pretty face with wide, hauntingly beautiful eyes that seemed to reach out and touch him. She'd been sitting toward the back of the church and hidden behind a marble column, looking as fresh and lovely as a bouquet of springtime flowers. He should have walked over and introduced himself then and there and been done with it. Instead, he'd steered the kids out of the church as fast as he could without being obvious. Later, he wanted to kick himself. He'd acted like a schoolboy and all over a woman, one whose name he'd been too shy to ask. She worked at the travel agency next to, next to the Safeway store. That much he knew. He should, since he frequently invented excuses, to stop off at the grocery on his way home from the office, just on the off chance he might see her. Naturally, he tried not, not to be obvi obvious about it, but he couldn't help wondering if she noticed him. He'd been out of the dating scene for so long, he wasn't sure how to go about meeting a woman, not without someone introducing him. The last time he'd walked up to a woman, cold turkey, and struck up a conversation, he'd been in high school. He hadn't minded making a fool of himself back then, but it bothered the hell out of him now. The fact that he was interested said a lot. Perhaps he was ready to meet someone. All he had to do was figure out how, how to go about it. Following the near panic attack at the church that morning, Seth was no longer sure of anything. He'd become so disgusted with himself that the only clear option was to drop the issue entirely. It encouraged him that he found himself attracted to another one. It was progress, he supposed, but he wasn't in the place in the place where he felt comfortable seeking her out. She did intrigue him, however. Seth admitted as, as he had dismantled the bottom of the toaster. Crumbs fell onto his workbench, and he brushed them aside. But there were plenty of attractive women around. If that was what appealed to him, all he had to do was look around the office. There were any number of eligible, good-looking women in search of a meaningful relationship there. Why her? Why this travel agent? Why now? Seth didn't have the answer to those questions, any more than he knew what was wrong with the toaster. The look in her eyes, he decided, yes, she was attractive. And even from a distance, he could see that her eyes were a pretty shade of blue, alpine blue. If he were to give the color of, of a name, deep, dark, intense, it was the intense part that spoke to him. And the fathomless depths, he saw her pain. Naturally, he could be seeing something that wasn't there, a reflection off a window, but he didn't think so. The pain was what he recognized because it was a reflection of his own. Whoever this woman was, whatever had happened in her life, she'd suffered. The same way he'd suffered. Let's, let's see. 
He felt her. He felt her hurt, realized in those brief seconds when their eyes had held that her anguish lay just below the surface, the way his did. Then, too, he could be imagining it all. He wasn't a psychologist, nor had he done any counseling, but he walked that same rut-filled pathway himself, and he recognized the pitfalls. So they attended the same church, praise. It was the beginning. It made matters a bit easier. Now all he needed to do was develop a few more of the social graces, like learning how to say his name without stuttering or stumbling over his own two feet. Hey, introducing himself didn't sound like such a bad idea, if it didn't take him five years or more. But for now, he was content to let, the ma- let matters be. He wasn't unhappy. His life had meaning. If, if he wanted to risk his heart again, it wouldn't be anytime soon. Daddy, Judge stepped inside the garage. The football game's going to start. I'll be inside in just a minute. Okay, but Judge lingered. Not that it was unusual. His son enjoyed watching him work. Often Seth invented a project that required Judge or Jason's help. Both had already proved themselves to be worthy nail pounders. You know what Mrs. Miracle said? Seth didn't have a clue. What? She said we should take a vacation. A vacation? Yep, during spring break. When's that? March or April. He needed to check the school calendar. It was an odd comment for the housekeeper to make. Although she made a habit of saying some pretty unusual things. Just the other night she'd gotten a chuckle out of him. She said something about the woodpecker. The woodpecker owing his success to his head and not just his pecker. He chuckled anew. Are we going on vacation? He had plenty of vacation time due to him, and it sounded like a fun thing to do. I'll think about it, he pushed. He brushed the breadcrumbs from the from his hands and ruffled his son's hair affectionately. First, let's go see the Seahawks whoop the Broncos. Yeah, Judge thrust his fist into the air. Smiling to himself, Seth walked from the garage to the kitchen. Mrs. Merkel was busy. Jason at her side, helping her prepare dinner, helping being the operative word. What he saw said, put his mouth to watering. The woman cooked like a dream. I'm making pie, Jason proclaimed proudly, from scratch. Great, he beamed. Mrs. Mrs. Miracle an appreciated smile. Apple pie was his favorite. The housekeeper skillfully ran the sharp edge of the knife around the granny smith apple. The peeling twisted and curled away from the blade like a tight ringlet. I always said that a good cook starts from scratch and keeps on scratching. Seth grinned, acknowledging her wit that he wore her wit. Judge and, I, Judge and I are about to watch the football game. Are we going on vacation? The same question. This time from Jason. I'm thinking about it. There was a travel agency, the housekeeper commented. Her eye on the apple, right next to the Safeway store. You know the one I mean, don't you? There's that nice young lady who owns it. The same one who was in church this morning. With Harriet Foster's is. I'm sure she'd be more than happy to help you plan a trip with the children. Seth stopped abruptly, and so did his heart. How is it you know Harriet Foster? To the best of his knowledge, this was Mrs. Merkel's first week at the church. Oh, my, anyone who attends Community Christian knows Harriet Foster. It wasn't possible that the housekeeper knew that he held any tenderness for the stainless woman he'd spotted in church that very morning, was it? You might stop after work in the next year or so. It isn't too early to book it now for the springtime. She continued, concentrating on peeling the apples. I'll need to think on it, he said, matter-of-factly, making sure no emotion slid back into his voice. 
Don't wait too long. He who hesitates misses a worm. Excuse me? Well, it does it doesn't matter what you missed. Just that you're going to be missing right just that you're going to be missing, right? I suppose, says said, and moved into the family room where Judd had already turned on the television. It was a relief to focus his attention on the sporting event rather than dwell on Mrs. Ruffles and County questions. Suggestions. Chapter eight. We did it, Jane announced triumphantly when she walked and worked bright early Monday morning. Reba had been at the office since seven, going over the books, checking the finances. The profit margin on the travel agency was so narrow that she had to keep close tabs on expenses. She glanced up from the computer screen. Did what? Escaped. Oh, escaped down Harriet. She didn't corner me in the church, thanks to you. Jane's grin stretched from ear to ear. Naturally, I screamed my calls all day. And yes, Aunt Harriet did try a number of times. But I thwarted her. We thwarted her, Jane amended. Reba chewed on the end of her pen. She hadn't been able to take her mind off of Seth Webster from the moment she'd seen him in the church. A little investigative work had helped dig up a few cherished facts. First and foremost was his first name, and the fact that he remained single following his wife's death. He had two children, six-year-old twins. Apparently there was a housekeeper, too. One of the children referred to as Mrs. Miracle. The one who'd made a point of making eye contact with her. The woman seemed a bit unusual. She looked perfectly normal, an older version of Mary Poppins. Twinkling eyes, a mischievous smile. A look about her that said she knew far more than she let on. Reba suspected that she was reading too much into that point. That point to look the Webster housekeeper had sent her. It had given her an uncanny feeling. What's with you and Mr. Webster? Jane, sh Jane, shocked by her asking. It was almost as if her employee had read her mind. What's with me and nothing? How could there be? I don't even know the man, Reba attempted to hide how flustered the question had made her. But it was obvious by the way her hands fluttered over the people. But you'd like to know him better. You'd like to know him. It would do no good to pretend otherwise, Reba. It would do no good to otherwise. Reba lifted her delicate shoulder. I suppose. I wish you could have seen the way your eyes lit up when you first saw him. Even Cindy noticed. Reba's face colored. Jane hung up her coat and sat down at the desk across from her. You know what I've been thinking? Reba had a clue, and furthermore, she wasn't entirely sure she wanted to know. You intend to tell me whether I want to know or not, right? Jane chuckled. You guessed it. Reba waited. Jane glanced at her almost as if she were afraid to speak. The church needs an adult, someone who's good with children, to step in and oversee the Christmas pageant. Yes, and your wonderfully generous Aunt Harriet volunteered you, remember? I'm not the right person. Jane's objection was adamant. But I do know someone well suited to the task. A woman who's familiar with overseeing large projects, someone with infinite patience, flexible hours, and a love of children. Someone who seems like a dream. Reba shook her head before Jane got around to making the suggestion. She raised both hands to stop her friends from continuing. Don't even say it. You, Reba Maxwell, you're the perfect choice. This was all a bad joke. Limitless patience, her? Besides, Reba knew next to nothing about children, the zilch about Christmas programs, and what it entailed. And although she liked children, her experience with them was limited to her teenage babysitting years. She'd be an idiot to step into a coordination, a coordinator's role with less than a month before Christmas. You're wrong, Jane. I'm flattered you think so highly of my talents. 
But in this case, it would never work. You want to meet Mr. Webster, don't you? She hesitated. What better way than to involve yourself and his children? It was too cold, too calculated, too ridiculous. Reba dismissed the idea immediately. She walked over to the coffee machine and refilled her mug. To hear her employee, this might well be her one and only chance of having a relationship. While it was true that eligible men weren't meeting a path through the door, she didn't think of herself as desperate, either. She was attracted to Seth Webster, but that didn't mean she, she was willing to take on the impossible task of directing a Christmas pageant. Jane followed her. You do want to meet him, don't you? She stressed once more. It seems to me, Reba said, exhaling softly, that you inherited more from your Aunt Harriet than you realize. Ouch, Jane grimaced. You deserve that for even suggesting such a thing. My, me directing a Christmas program? Why, that's the most outrageous thing I've ever heard. You're missing something here. Reba gazed pointedly at her watch and removed the, cl the clothes sign from the front window. It's starting time. We've got a couple of minutes yet. First, I want you. First, I want to know if you heard what I said. Yes, but I don't have a response. The Christmas pageant takes place Christmas Eve. Her voice escalated softly, as if this fact was of some importance. So, Reba was growing tired of this conversation. She returned to her desk and turned on refocusing her attention on the ledgers. Wasn't it Christmas Eve? Her parents wanted you to attend some big family shindig. Yes, Reba answered tiredly. And doesn't the Christmas program offer you the perfect excuse not to be stuck with your relatives who you don't want to see? Who you don't want to see? Reba hesitated. Her mother could very well take issue with her. She was involved. Her mother very well couldn't. Her mother couldn't. Sorry, very well take issue with her if she was involved with the church Christmas program. Still, she wasn't convinced of any excuse would be worth all the time and effort it would take to direct thirty or more third-grade school children with some play revolving around the nativity. There were limits to how far she was willing to go to keep the peace with her family. Her parents had taken Vicky's side in the issue. That much had been painfully obvious from the first, but she didn't want to drag her Aunt Gertie and Uncle Bill into this mess. If she failed to attend the family dinner, they were sure to feel hurt, especially since they were her godparents. There was something else, too. The thought of everyone gathered around the festive holiday table talking about her when she wasn't there to defend herself. It was grossly unfair. As an extra benefit, you'd have the perfect opportunity to meet Judd and Jason Webster. Jane's piercing eyes held hers. And their father, she said with meaning. Jane Preston, you're shameless. True. Are you going to do it? Reba hesitated, unsure. I don't know yet. The church might have already have someone. They don't, Jane said. And I know why. She was a fool for even considering taking on the responsibility. But Jane made a strong point on a number of issues. It did offer her a ready excuse to avoid the family get-together. It wasn't as if her mother could argue when she learned Reba was involved in the church activity. Jane made a good case regarding Reba's organizational skills. Her hours were flexible, and she could leave the office on short notice. Her staff of two full-time and one part-time employees were well-trained and, and would be able to carry on their duties without her standing over them with a whip with a whip and chair. She was a natural with children, although she hadn't had much opportunity of late to get involved with them. Working with the younger generation didn't intimidate her, not the way it would others. The truth was, she was desperately lonely. The holidays were always difficult for her. Others had family, friends, obligations. 
At no other time of the year did it bother her more that she wasn't married. The Christmas project would help her take her mind off all that she missed. But the most convincing argument, the one that carried the most weight, was what her employee had said about meeting Seth Webster. He didn't know her. He had no reason to make her acquaintance. Weeks, months to pass before she had an opportunity to invade excuse to meet him. Yet here was a golden opportunity to not only meet him, but work with his children, get to know him and his sons, talk about having something handed to her on a silver platter. No one knows me, she says several minutes later, picking up the conversation where they left off. Jane looked at her. And please, you mean at church? Sure they do. Maybe not by name, but certainly they know your face. It'd be like asking a stranger to step in. There will be other adults there as well. It's not, it isn't unusual for a number of parents to pitch in. It isn't? This gave her hope. Mrs. Darling had been teaching the children the music ever since September. I think you'll find that it isn't nearly as demanding as everyone's made it seem. All that's really required is the right person. And you think that's me? She remained skeptical. But Jane was right. This was the golden opportunity. Beyond a doubt, you're perfect. Hardly, Rita said. She was a long way from that. As an added bonus, you get to meet Mr. Webster. Seth, she supplied without thinking. Seth, is it? And just how did you find that out? The corners of Reba's mouth tickled with the effort to repress a smile. I have my ways. I'm sure you do. The morning passed quickly with the holidays fast approaching. The foot traffic was higher than usual. It amazed Reba that people actually expected to walk into a travel agency and book an extensive trip for the holidays. November and December were two of the most popular vacation months of the entire year. You'll thank me for this later, you know, Jane commented after Reba called and talked to Pastor Lovelace. He seemed genuinely pleased to hear from her and ecstatic when she told him the reason for her phone call. Don't be so sure, depending on how this turns out, I might be forced to hire a hitman. Just you wait. You're going to thank me for this, Jane said with utter confidence. Lights from the Christmas tree stand on the other side of the parking lot blinked on in the descending daylight. Who knows how long it would have taken you to meet Seth, Seth Webster if it weren't for me. Reba pinched her lips together to keep from retorting. Yes, meeting Seth was one of the reasons she'd agreed to take, a, to take over the coordinator's job, but it wasn't the only one. The bell over the door jingled as the latest customer into the shop. Reba glanced up and smiled automatically. Can I help you? It wasn't until the words had slipped past her lips that she realized it was Seth Webster who stood in front of her desk. The air between them sizzled. Reba wondered if anyone else noticed. She did, and she knew he did too. Hello again. He said and smiled. It took a great deal to unnerve her, but he'd succeeded. How can I help you, she asked, in what she hoped was a nonchalant manner, gesturing toward the empty chair in front of her desk. Now all she had to do was figure out a way to carry on an intelligent conversation. Chapter 9 Emily Merkel hummed softly to herself as she went about preparing dinner for Mr. Webster and the children. It was these short-term assignments that she enjoyed the most. Timing was everything. She never doubted that broken hearts could be mended, but all the pieces had to be gathered together first. She'd see to that, of course, and, in, in fact, had already begun going about the task. Mr. Webster wasn't a fool. It wouldn't take him long to discover her talent stretched beyond the job description listed for the housekeeper. 
Her smile tightened with all she had to accomplish and the sheer entertainment she derived from doing it. Seth Webster was a prime example, grieving for his young wife the way he did. Pamela wouldn't like that one bit. She was a generous, warm-hearted soul who didn't begrudge her husband happiness. Emily dumped a glob of hamburger onto the palm of her wet hand and skillfully formed a meatball. The recipe, her grandmother's from the old country, was sure to please. The door leading from the garage to the kitchen opened and Mr. Webster moseyed inside the house like someone in the days. Good evening, Emily greeted him cheerfully, looking past him to be sure he remembered to close the garage door. He had. She rinsed her hands off under the faucet. How was your day? She asked in the same upbeat mode, hoping it would snap him out of a spell. Mr. Webster glanced at her as if he had, hadn't heard her speak. Mr. Webster? She noticed the hint of red at the top of his ears. You stopped off at the travel agency, didn't you? He blinked and frowned. How did you know that? It was fairly obvious by the flustered look about him. She didn't comment on that, but instead offered a convenient excuse. You're a bit later this evening. Yes, yes, I suppose I am. Did Miss Maxwell have any suggestions for you? Ah, yes, he cleared his throat his tears, and his ears. Hang on one second. He cleared, <laughs> he cleared his throat and his ears brightened to a deep shade of red. She's putting together several packages and prices for me and the kids to read, for, the kid, and for me and the kids to review. She's rather nice, isn't she? Emily strived to sound nonchalant, but she could see that his visit had achieved the desired results. She was delighted. This was all going so smoothly, better than she'd hoped. You know Riva Maxwell? Her employer asked, sounding surprised. Only from church, Emily quickly occupied herself with dinner preparations, methodically adding the perfectly shaped meatballs to the shimmering marinara sauce. From church, Seth repeated. She's taking over as coordinator of the Christmas program. She made a wise choice. Those who bury their talents to make a grave those who bury their talents make a grave mistake. The decision had been a difficult one for Reba, and Emily was proud of her. Having the travel agent work with the children was all part of the big picture. The rewards would far outweigh any inconveniences, but Reba didn't know that yet. Such wonders awaited didn't know that yet. Such wonders awaited her. Emily was impatient to see it come to pass. Everything was coming together nicely, very nicely indeed. The best was yet to be. Emily had outdone herself, which was saying something. Seth had mused following the evening meal. As time passed, he came to realize that the children's name for her fit her to a tea. Mrs. Miracle had worked wonders in all their lives. As promised, Emily read the children talk read to the children following their bath while he washed the dishes. He followed his housekeeper's suggestion and stopped off at the travel agency. He'd been finished with the firecracker project in a couple he'd be finished with the firecracker project in a couple of months and could use the time away. Although Judd and Jason had been to Disneyland a number of times, they've never been to Florida. Reba has suggested a number of cruise ideas as well, with prices that fell easily within his budget. But it wasn't the vacation plans that had brought him to, into the travel agency. It was the idea of meeting the owner, of talking to her one-on-one, -on -one, getting to know her, letting her know him. Even now his heart raced like an Indy 500 engine. He bent forward and rested his elbows against the desktop and rubbed his hands down his face. He never experienced anything like this. He never felt as strongly attracted to a woman, not since Pamela. He barely knew her name, and already he couldn't wait to see her again. Reba, he said her name aloud, thinking that the mere sound of it was, was musical, magical. Seth was convinced that he that, that he made a first-class idiot of himself, staring at, down, staring at her the way he had. 
He'd hardly seem to ever connect one coherent thought to another. Some self-preservation had kicked into place when he'd realized he'd been standing in front of her desk staring at her the way a boy does a puppy in a pet shop. When he'd finally had the presence of mind to ask about vacations for him and the twins, Reba had seemed as flustered as he. She promised to put together several ideas and get back to him. He walked out of the agency, taking a small taking small backward steps until he backed into the door. It wasn't until he raced across the parking lot and was sitting inside his vehicle that he realized he hadn't given her his name or phone number. He started back to the to leave the necessary information when she met him in the parking lot. I need could you dinner Friday night? His heart returned to his throat at the awkward way in which he had asked her dinner. He was certain she hadn't understood a word he said until she laughed and nodded. They set a time to meet, and he hurried back. And he heard back, hurried back to his car, his heart jumping rope inside his chest. He had a date, his first and longer than he could remember. All he had to do now was behave like a human instead of an alien from outer space. <laughs> Excitement swelled like a water-soaked sponge inside him. Seth started for his study. Seth started for his study with a fresh cup of coffee and hesitated. He needed to ask Mrs. Merkel if she would be available to babysit the twins Friday evening. There weren't provisions in her contract for weekend babysitting. Naturally, he'd pay her overtime, whatever she wanted. The woman was worth ten Mrs. Hampstead. With his coffee in his hand, he walked into the living room to find the children snuggled, one on each side of the housekeeper. Her reading glasses were balanced halfway down her nose, a book open. The children were enraptured, or enraptured. <laughs> the only time Seth had ever seen them, still, was when they were sound asleep. Jason braced his head against the housekeeper's pudgy arm. Judd's arms were tucked about his bent knees, and his chin rested there. It took Seth a couple of moments to recognize the story. It was C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Pamela's favorite childhood story. The one she'd longed to read to her children one day, only to be cheated out of it, only to be cheated out of the long way to joy. Mrs. Merkel glanced up and smiled. Hi, Daddy, Jason covered his mouth and yawned loudly. Mrs. Miracle is reading us the new story. So I see some of his tension leaped from his voice, leaped into his voice. Of all the books in the world, he wondered how it was that she'd chosen that particular one. It's a good one, Judd added. None of that mushy girl stuff. Seth's gaze fell to the book itself. Moments earlier, his heart had raced with thoughts of Reba and the impromptu dinner date he'd arranged. Now it's going to do a sudden grinding halt. His chest tightened painfully. Where did you get that book, he demanded, not bothering to disguise his distress. The book. Mrs. Miracle closed the volume and stared at the front cover. It's mine. I brought it with me. It's Pamela's, he countered sharply. The woman had been in his den, and he had searched through his desk drawers. He didn't care how good a cook she was. He, he wouldn't have her sneaking around his office. Mr. Webster, let me assure you. I'll prove it, he said, his voice rough with, his voice, his voice rough with shock and anger. Without another word, he marched back into his office and sat down at the desk. He already recently vacated. The children raced in the room after him, and Mrs. Merkel followed, as he flustered and red in the face. I put it here myself just recently, he said, jerking open the bottom drawer. He held that very book in his hand, seeing for himself how the corners had frayed and worn down so that the filler showed through, just the way the one she had did. The gold lettering had faded on the title, the same as what the book was Mrs. Merkel held. See, he said, leveling his gaze toward the drawer. The book was there. Seth's mouth dropped. 
and he glanced up at the housekeeper dumbfounded. Slowly, almost as if he were afraid Pam's volume would vanish if he touched it, he lifted it from its resting place. His round, shock filled eyes returned to Mrs. Merkel. Did she take Mommy's book? Judd asked. Said shook his head. I'm afraid I owe you an apology, he said, nearly choking on the words. Not because he wasn't sorry for it, for he was, but he'd been so sure. Not only had a woman chosen to read the one book his wife had loved, but she'd read from a copy that was identical to Pam's in every way. How was that possible? Had he walked into an episode of Twilight Zone? If he looked at himself in the mirror, would he see Rod Sterling's reflection? Seth was almost afraid to find out. Come on, you two, Mrs. Merkel said, ushering the kids back in the room. Let's find out what happens to the children next. They shouldn't go in the wardrobe, should they? Jed asked. That, my fine young man, is a matter of opinion. His housekeeper looked over her shoulder and said, Everyone needs to take a risk now and then. Don't you agree, Mr. Webster? Chapter 10 Sharon Palmer quietly put dinner on the table. Her husband sat reading the newspaper in front of the tel television, doing his best to ignore her. She knew what he was up to. He barely said a simple Civil word to her all week, but then she hadn't behaved any better. Dinner's ready, she told him, without enthusiasm, sitting down at the round oak table in the alcove off the kitchen. She didn't wait for Jerry to join her before unfolding and placing the napkin on her lap. Leaving the television on, Jerry claimed to seat at the table and kept his eyes on the screen. For years, it had been customary to turn the set off completely. Dinner time was sacred, a time set aside to share the happiness of their day, the happenings of their day. No longer. Her husband didn't so much as look at the meal she'd spent the better part of the afternoon preparing. His gaze left the sportscaster only long enough to react to the serving spoon. Oh, to reach for the serving spoon, sorry. Not until he finished heaping his plate did he bother to ask, What is it? A frown dominated his still handsome face. A casserole, Sharon assured him, not meaning his eye. What's in it? he demanded. Jerry had never been a picky eater. Eggplant. His gaze hardened. You know I don't like eggplant. It's cleverly disguised with cheese. Taste it. Who knows? You might even surprise yourself. The recipe came from Maggie, her best friend, who was an excellent cook. I don't like eggplant, he insisted. And I do. Why is it if you don't like something, I can never have it myself? Eggplant happens to be my favorite vegetable. But ordering in a restaurant, don't serve it to me. If you don't like it, don't eat it. Jerry slammed his fork against the table. Fine, I won't. The chair nearly toppled as he shoved himself away from the table. He talked across the kitchen, he stalked across the kitchen to the refrigerator, took out a loaf of bread, and probably made himself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Sherry figured she was supposed to feel sorry for him, but she didn't. Instead, she poured herself a small glass of red wine and turned on the radio so that the classical music played softly in the background. Jerry did his best to counteract the soothing music by slamming around the room. Sharon ignored him the same way He'd, ignored, he'd been ignoring her a week. Finally, Jerry took a seat again and wolfed down his sandwich like a man eating his last meal. The eggplant parmesan was heavenly. She hadn't made the dish in years and wondered now why she deprived, her, why she deprived herself of her favorite dish. Jerry didn't appreciate her sacrifice. She wasn't fond of salmon, but served it at least once a month because it was her husband's favorite. It was time he learned to give as well as take in his partnership. He expected her to Pandered it was every whim. While those days were over, Jerry had retired, but she hadn't been given any such reprieve. She still washed and cleaned and cooked while he played golf with his cronies. 
If she showed any signs of doing something for herself, her husband invariably disapproved. The eggplant dinner was a good example. Visiting Cynthia the children was another. When he finished the sandwich, Jerry sat for a moment and stared at her. What's wrong? Why does something have to be wrong? She asked. She took pride in pretending nothing was amiss. You haven't been yourself lately. You don't seem to have as much energy. You hardly laugh. And frankly, you've gotten to be something of a drag. If you're sick, see a doctor, but do something. In other words, you're suggesting I step out of it. Her husband had never been known for his sensitivity. He hesitated and nodded. Yes, you're the one with the problem. Me? She noticed the way he assumed the problem the problem lay entirely with her. You sleep you sleep in every morning, we're retired, remember? And when you do come to bed, you toss and turn half the night. I've been having a bit of a problem sleeping at all. The doctor says this sometimes happens to people as people age. You're only sixty two. How kind of him to remind her of her age. You're only as old as you feel. At the moment, Sharon felt 110. Called, I called the travel agent this afternoon, she announced, falling in the familiar habit of changing subjects rather than dealing with the unpleasantness between them. The change in Jerry was immediate. His face muscles relaxed and softened, as if the words pleased him. You called about the cruise. I knew you'd eventually have a change of heart. He leaned forward, affectionately brushed his mouth against her cheek, then reached for the bottle of wine and poured himself a glass, burgundy and peanut butter don't necessarily go together, but this is the reason to celebrate. He cleaned his glass against hers and raised it to his lips. Sharon lowered her gaze, feeling guilty, but she had no reason to. He'd find out sooner or later that her call had had nothing to do with the cruise, which had been put on hold. To mislead him would be cruel, but she couldn't see any reason they, they couldn't compromise. It wasn't about the cruise, she admitted with a certain reluctance. The light in her husband's eyes dimmed. It wasn't? Sharon nervously dabbed a napkin at the corner of her mouth. I, I booked the flight to Seattle to spend Christmas with Seth and Kit and the twins. There were only a few seats left on the flight, so I booked one for you too. I thought, you did what? Jerry bolted upright like a, like a jack-in-the-box, escaping his confines. His face reddened and his jaw tightened with indignation and outrage. I told you before before that I didn't want you disrupting the twins on you know, the first Christmas with your father. Clay and Neil aren't going to be home, and what's wrong with spending the holiday here, just the two of us? It used to be you enjoyed my company. So we can spend the holidays fighting? She asked, slapping her napkin down against the table. She lost her appetite. Jerry folded his arms in a defensive gesture and glared at her, challenging her to deny his role as head of the family. You're not going. For nearly 40 years, she she lived with his dictatorial ways, put up with his arbitrary decisions, swallowed her pride, but she would do so no longer. I've already bought her tickets. Then you'll return them, he said, leaving, leaving no room for argument. Feel free to return your ticket if that's what you wish. But I'm spending Christmas with my grandchildren. I don't know what you're being so stubborn about this, Jerry. I miss the twins and they miss me. You're damn right. I'm taking that back that ticket. Sharon recognized the tone of his voice only too well. She hadn't lived with Jerry all these years not to know when his mind was made up. Nothing she said or did beyond this point would do one wit of good. We'll miss you, she said quietly. It would be the first Christmas she'd spent apart from him since they'd been in college. Her heart ached knowing they'd be apart because that was the way he wanted it. You'll miss me, he repeated, sounding more than a little stunned. That's all you have to say? Do you want me to add anything more? 
she wasn't being perfect, only inquisitive. He didn't answer her. Instead, he moved back to his recliner and pointed to the remote control of the TV, turning up the volume until it was so loud she couldn't think without the grating sound of the newscast echoing in her ear. She turned off the classical music set. She turned off the classical music sad that her marriage had dissolved to this childish display of temper on both their parts. Jerry didn't speak to her while she cleared the table and washed the dishes herself. Applying lotion to her hands, she joined him in front of the television to watch their favorite game show, Jeopardy. It used to be that they'd call out the answers and keep it so they scored between them. Jerry didn't seem to want to continue the tradition that night, so she reached for a new. He left her soon after final Jeopardy and disappeared in the garage, where he was tinkering with some project. The moment he was gone, attention evaporated as if someone had sucked it away with a powerful vacuum, left in its wake with a, fra a fragile contentment as Sharon worked the worsted yarn, weaving together the sweater. Her fingers worked the metal needles. They made soft, soft plashing sounds as they clanked against each other. The tend of contentment began to fade as the regrets took turns lighting up in her mind. She didn't like what was happening between her and her husband, but felt powerless to stop it. Jerry was harsh and reasonable and dictatorial. She wasn't willing to let him control her life any longer. She made her stand, defied him, put, but she experienced no sense of exhilaration. No rush of triumph. Her heart was heavy and burdened with sadness. The dull ache reminded her of those first months following Pamela's funeral. In many ways, she was dealing with another death, only this time it was the death of her marriage. Jerry finished in the garage and without a word headed towards her bedroom. He showered and reappeared in his robe and slippers. Sharon concentrated on the television screen as if the murder mystery movie of the week was tossing out three recipes. He walked over to his chair and reached for the novel he'd recently been reading. Then he headed back to the bedroom. He didn't tell her he was going to bed or wish her good night. She didn't say anything to him either. By the time the movie was over and she watched the 11 o'clock news and listened for the weather forecast, Jerry was sound asleep. He lay on his back, sprawled with an armhole stretch. Irritated that he'd taken more than half his share of the bed, Sharon frowned and jerked her pajamas out of the top dresser drawer. If he was so keen to spend the holidays alone, then maybe she should let him sleep by himself and see how he liked that as well. With a sense of purpose, she moved into the guest bedroom. This would show him how miserable he'd be without her and without family during the holidays. He'd soon learn that she was her own woman, with her, with her own mind and her own will. She didn't need someone to stand guard over her 24 hours a day. She was intelligent, articulate. It was time for Jerry to appreciate her. Those were all the things she said to herself as she went to bed. The things she repeated as she tossed and turned until all hours of the night. The room was dark and cold, the bed uncomfortable. Pride was what kept her there. Pride and pure stubbornness. She wanted Jerry to wake and find her gone and worry. Just a little when he realized she hadn't been to bed. She wanted him to regret the way he treated her. If he did, he didn't show it. When she wandered in the kitchen early the next morning, her husband was dressed and ready to go and ready for a golf match with his friends. The coffee was brewed, and he was humming softly to himself. Apparently he'd slept better than he had in months as well as he should, since he'd taken his half of the bed out of the middle. Morning, he greeted her, sounding as bright and chipper as she could remember. Sharon reached for a mud. Morning, did you sleep well, her husband asked, leaning against the counter. He wore his favorite golf sweater, the one she knitted for him several years back, the lucky one. 
the very sweater he'd been wearing when he scored his hole in one. Like a log, she answered, stretching the truth. No need for Jerry to know how restless it might have been. How she yearned for morning, waiting to hear him stir before venturing in the kitchen herself. Me too, he smiled, as if auditioning for a toothpaste advertisement. She sipped her coffee and stared at him over the edge of the cup. He stared back, his gaze unwavering. With all the trouble you've been having sleeping lately, maybe you'd get more rest in the guest bedroom. That wasn't what Sharon expected. He was supposed to have missed her. Supposed to have awakened and felt lost and lonely without her beside him. There would be a time when neither of one of them slept well when the other was, not, was away. And it happened so rarely that they talked about it for days afterwards, cuddled each other each night, grateful for the warmth for the warm feel of one another. Are you suggesting, she said, not allowing the hurt to show that you want me to move into the guest bedroom? The question appeared to take Jerry by surprise. He froze and then quietly set his mug aside. You said yourself you slept better without me. That wasn't true in the least. She grossly exaggerated. I'm asking you if you want me to move out of our out of our bedroom, Jerry. Quit avoiding the issue. His shoulders rose and fell sharply. All I'm saying is that you seem to sleep better there there than with me. Do you want me to move out of the bedroom or don't you? He hesitated, then he shrugged. Do as you like. She swallowed tightly and stiffened her spine. I'll move then. Suit yourself, you, you seem to anyway. Why should this be any different? Having said that, he headed for the garage. Sharon stood frozen, frozen as she heard the garage door whirl open, and then a few moments later close again. A painful tightening in her chest ached as she, bat as she battled back from these cries. So that was the way it was to be. After dumping the rest of her coffee into the sink, she rushed to the master bedroom, threw open the closet, and scooped up as many clothes as she could, as she could carry. With her arms loaded, dresses dangling, metal hangers cutting into her fingers, she all but stumbled into the guest bedroom and dumped everything on top of the mattress. The room that at one time had belonged to Pamela, her dead daughter, it seemed fitting that this was where Sharon would live out the last days of her marriage, 40 years and sinking fast, 40 years and dying. Okay, that's it for this week. Um, I thank you guys, be close enough, for coming. See if I can close this thing down, hang on. Too many buttons in my life, okay. Um, like I said, we're going to be back. Next week we're going to do this at 5 o'clock. Instead of 6.30, because we are putting, um, you know, there's going to be that event at 7 p.m. that we're going to be doing. And like I said, if you if you guys want a reading, I, mean, I, got, I got messages. Oh, my God. Everybody's here. I see you all. Um, if you guys want a reading, head on over there at uh, www.californiahauntsradio.com and Set your reading up, and like I said, slide all the way across the top of the thing, and click on the last um, the last word up there, and it'll take you down to events where you can join in on that reading, because it's going to be a really cool reading. Stephanie's going to read uh, three questions that, that you have, and, and, and that, and you'll get that done. But I want to thank you guys for coming today. It's been, it's been a rough couple days for me, but uh, I managed to come in and do this. Uh, tomorrow, uh, we're back on regular schedule with California Haunts Radio at 6.30 p.m., we are going to be talking to Brent Rames, who's going to be talking about UFO encounters and Bigfoot and all that good uh, paranormal stuff. So we're so that's where we'll be tomorrow at 6:30 p.m. Pacific. I will see you tomorrow. Have a good day, guys.